question, and then we'll uh, even, uh, Lord willing, depending on our time tonight, if uh, we have uh, the time, we'll, we'll jump back and forth from Revelation 11. Am I off? Oh, I sure am. Okay, thank you for letting me know that. Appreciate that. So we'll jump back and forth if we have time tonight from Revelation and then back to the book of Daniel. And um, I know I'm taking on a little bit of a challenge as prophecy uh, can be uh, somewhat uh, controversial. It can be somewhat confusing or complicated. And uh, I know that there are people on different um, eschatological uh, spectrums or different eschatological uh, beliefs. And, uh, uh, you know, the all-millennial position was fairly popular until uh, World War I, World War II, and some of that took place. And then the all-millennial uh, position seemed to decline a little bit. Uh, then there's the, the post-millennial, and then there's the pre-millennial, and uh, we are a, a pre-trib, pre-millennial uh, church, and I'm a pre-trib, pre-millennial pastor, and I, I don't make apologies for that. I don't mean that in a, a way to slap somebody upside the head with a pre-millennial or pre-trib two-by-four, uh, but I believe uh, that that is the, the, the best and the most accurate interpretation uh, from the Word of God regarding uh, these prophecies and these passages on eschatology. So I know I'm venturing into some deep water a little bit, but as we have looked at this theme of our hope being in the Lord, and I know I've touched on uh, the blessed hope already in this series, but I was really drawn to once again look at prophecy, and it, this may turn into a little bit more of a series within a series or a sub-series uh, within a series, but I want to go back and I want to kind of hit the basics with prophecy. I know some of this is going to be redundant. It's going to be repetitive. Uh, but it's good for us uh, to rehearse things that we already know and to be reminded of them as we often have to uh, be reminded of uh, some of the basics. And I know uh, sometimes around the house I have to be reminded of certain things that I have forgotten or the kids have to be reminded. So in a sense, uh, it's good for us to rehearse and to be reminded of some of the, uh, the basics. But the question is, what is prophecy? What is prophecy? Let's look at this, first of all, and I've, I know I've spoken on this a little bit already, but prophecy, its basic definition, the one that we probably would most often recognize, is that prophecy is foretelling. Prophecy is foretelling. So we think of it in the sense of a spiritual gift given to people, primarily preachers, that enabled them to accurately predict future events. That's what we probably often think of when we think of prophecy. And it's a statement that refers to a future event. It predicts a future event. And we can go back all the way to Genesis 3 and verse number 15, where we see the prophecy regarding the Messiah in that the Messiah would crush the head of the serpent. The serpent would bite uh, the heel of Christ. But we see there in Genesis 3 and verse 15 a prophecy regarding Jesus Christ as early as the third chapter of the book of Genesis. But we often think of prophecy in predictive terms. But prophecy is also a spiritual gift 
given to people, enabling them to receive direct revelation from God. So prophecy in the time of the completion of the 66 books of the Bible, we understand that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So in that sense, there is a prophetic element to the inspiration of the Bible, the receiving of direct revelation from God. Now, there was a time for the completed canon where God would speak directly to individuals and he would reveal uh, through a written or sometimes even an audible form, often in visions or dreams, he would reveal to him or to uh, the writer there, the human author, God breathed to them the very scripture that is written in our Bible. So we have that sense of it, but we also have before the completed canon, times where God would directly speak to, for instance, David, as he is in the wilderness and then eventually as king, he would literally ask God for wisdom, for direction, and God would say whether to go up into battle or not, whether to go up into this town or not. And that is recorded in Scripture, for instance, in, in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. So we, we, we talk about prophets in the sense of the written Scripture, Holy men of God moved as, or holy men of God wrote or spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Ghost. Uh, we read there in, uh, in 2 Peter. So we see the prophecy in, we see prophecy, the gift of prophecy in the sense of the giving of Scripture, the receiving of direct revelation. But also, thirdly, we see prophecy, the gift of prophecy, as a temporary sign gift that ceased at the completion of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13, in verse number 8, and whether there be prophecies, they shall cease. Okay, so it's pretty clear there in 1 Corinthians 13, charity, love, never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail, whether there be tongues, they shall cease, whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. So the specific phrase is, they shall fail. So there is a distinction where God says, this is no longer the way God will communicate with man in that direct way. Hebrews then speaks to this, the book of Hebrews, in another passage that I know it's not a specific passage regarding prophecy, but it does speak to the fact that God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past, unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So now we are looking to the written word of God, the completed written word of God. We have Genesis through Revelation, all 66 books. We're not lacking anything. There's nothing missing we're not supposed to be out there digging through some cave like some Indiana Jones character trying to find some relic, hoping that we can find some additional revelation. It's not some secret hidden code 
that we have to wait for somebody to discover, and hopefully we'll get the rest of the revelation. It's not that we have to go to the Book of Mormon or to some vision sign or wonder that some supposed charismatic preacher claims that he or she receives, and, oh, God didn't tell us everything that we needed to know when he finished the Bible. He needed somebody else to come along and give us some more revelation. No, the prophetic gift has ceased. It is, as 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8, it shall fail. It has been marked, done. It has been finalized. It has been finished. So we see that aspect of prophecy. But we have to admit that there's one final, fourth way in which, I don't want to get too carried away here, but there's an aspect to the prophetic gift that is found in Revelation chapter number 11. I don't think that this contradicts what I was just saying about prophecy and the gifts ceasing, because Revelation chapter number 11, we see the two witnesses, we see the two prophets. There appears to be some manifestation of the gift for a short period of time during the tribulation. And we see that in Revelation chapter 11. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles in the holy city. Shall they tread underfoot forty and two months? And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Okay, so there doesn't appear to be any new divine revelation. It's not like there's revelation in, a, in another chapter, Revelation 23, added in the tribulation, okay, it's that, and, and again, this is part of where I believe a pre-tribulational view of the rapture is, is the best, but in anyway, there's a need for prophecy in the tribulation, the second half of the tribulation, the, 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 the great tribulation, that second half, after the abomination of desolation, desecration of the temple, there is a need for prophecy. There's a need for a delivering of God's message. Some people say this is Elijah and this is Enoch because they were the only two people from the Old Testament who did not die a natural death, a physical death. We don't know that. Some people speculate that. But the point is that God needs a prophet. God needs prophets to declare his message, and he chooses these two men. Now, there's 144,000 evangelists that are mentioned also in the book of Revelation. Those are not the Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? The JWs think there's 144,000 chosen. It's ridiculous, okay? But again, it speaks to the fact the church is gone. Believers are gone at the rapture. Now, there are people who get saved during the tribulation. There's martyrs that are at the throne of God, and they're speaking of their martyrdom and their blood being shed, okay? But God chooses, yes, 144,000. Yes, there are believers who get saved in the tribulation, but God chooses one more time to give man a revelation 
to be the mouthpiece for God during a time where the church is not functioning. We are in heaven, saved people at the marriage supper of the Lamb, receiving our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, being held into account. But there are going to be these two prophets who are going to minister for that second half of the tribulation, and they are given a special protection from God, and they are eventually martyred, and we won't get into all of that right now. But that's where we see a future aspect of this prophetic gift. But then there is a secondary aspect to the gift of prophecy. We focus on the foretelling, and I just went through those four subpoints there. But there is an aspect to the gift of prophecy that is functioning today, not the foretelling, but the forthtelling. That aspect of the preaching, the proclamation of the Word of God. The prophets who God gave to His people to share the gospel, to preach judgment, to, to preach to the unsaved, to, to give to His people, to encourage and to uh, proclaim the, the words of God. We can name many of them from Isaiah, Moses, Abraham, I mean, all the individuals, okay? We can name all those different individuals. They, in many cases, were given revelation from God and put it into Holy Writ, in the inspiration of God. God breathed. And uh, we won't get into all of the details of, of inspiration right now. But they also had an aspect of simply preaching and proclaiming already divinely revealed truth. And in that aspect, I would consider myself a prophet, not a capital P prophet in the sense that I am receiving new divine revelation. Now, Kelly, uh, she gets after me because sometimes I, I make noises at night and she has to elbow me, or I'm snoring and she has to elbow me. I'm not receiving any new revelation. As a matter of fact, Kelly is basically telling me to be quiet, shut up, you know. <laughs> I'm not receiving new vision signs and wonders. I don't have that gift, nor do I want that and that responsibility. But I have been called of God to proclaim his truth. In that sense, I have the gift of prophecy. And the gift of prophecy often comes with a keen sense of right and wrong, of black and white, of wanting things to be very clear and very sure. And I have a tendency to have those kinds of, of aspects to my to, to my personality and to, to my uh, calling and to my gifts. And I can be very opinionated. And I've had to learn some hard lessons sometimes. Sometimes my opinion isn't needed. Sometimes my opinion is too hard. It's in the wrong place. It's at the wrong time. But that is part of the gift of prophecy in a sense. And there are people who have a prophetic gift in that sense where they are very black and white. They're very clear, very cut and dry about things. doesn't necessarily mean they're called to preach in that sense. They're not necessarily pastors or in a pastoral role, but we know people who have strong opinions. They have a gift in that area and it's a strength and it's a weakness. That's one thing about our giftedness is God wants us to use our giftedness for edifying the church, for edifying one another. But that strength to edify can also have a negative, can be a weakness, and we can not use our ability or our gifts in the right way. 
when it's spirit-filled, when it's spirit-led, when it's yielded to God's control, our gifts are a tremendous asset to the church and to one another, to edify, to build up, to win others to, the, to, to Jesus Christ. But we can have a weakness in that, and we can be too strong, or we can uh, say the wrong thing at the, the wrong time. Peter had the gift of prophecy, clearly. But he would sometimes put his foot in his mouth, or he'd speak the wrong thing at the wrong time or in the wrong way. And God had to humble him, just like we have to accept God's lessons and humility sometimes when we are too opinionated. And sometimes we have to accept one another and forgive one another, and, and we have to help one another with that. But the gift of prophecy is, first of all, foretelling, but it's also foretelling, proclaiming the truth of God's word. So what is the purpose of prophecy? This is where we find hope in prophecy. Prophecy is not intended to be a wedge by which we divide each other up. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes it is a wedge issue where I've met people, and if I don't follow every jot and tittle of their eschatological view, they hit me upside the head with an eschatological two-by-four because I'm not exactly where they're at. And they've got it all figured out. They've got their maps, and they've got their timelines, and they've got, they know exactly when Jesus is coming again. They've got it all figured out, right? They, they, they see it all. They have uh, extraterrestrial vision, it seems like, sometimes. And some of them are very arrogant and very proud about it. And there's a, a way in which we need to humble ourselves and come under the submission, first of all, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the revealed Word of God, the Scripture. But also we need to be able to properly evaluate and interpret the Bible. And prophecy is one of the areas where people get so convoluted, they do exegetical gymnastics with prophecy. It's ridiculous how people will take prophetic passages and they will twist themselves all up in a pretzel trying to declare their eschatological view. And they have no idea what they're talking about. They will read into and read out and misinterpret passages of Scripture. And it's, it's, a, it's a shame sometimes how people will get so off on tangents. And there are places on the Internet that you never want to go because they're so full of conspiracies. And this person, they, they are, you know, there's, there's the right hand of the throne of God. And they're on it because they have that website and they have got it all figured out, all the way down to the secret codes revealed in the book of Revelation or in the book of Daniel. There's places like that on the internet. Watch out for those people. We need to be very careful. So what is the purpose of prophecy? There is a testimony in prophecy of God's sovereign control. This is one of the humbling aspects to prophecy. God is working out his redemption plan, and he will fulfill just as he created the universe, he will bring the universe to its desired end and the new heavens, and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, okay? That is a humbling aspect to prophecy that we need to keep in mind. This is a testimony. Prophecy is a testimony of God's sovereign control. Someone once said that 
God is, 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 and I don't mean this in any sacrilegious and disrespectful way, but God is like a, a, a director of a universal play. He's the greatest director. We've been in plays. We've been in musical uh, cantatas, an orchestra maybe. There's somebody who's directing. I've been in, I'm, I'm, I'm not a very good actor. I just never enjoyed, we had Reader's Theater in high school, my senior year. That's about the limit of my acting ability. And that's because I can read from a script, right? And uh, I'm just not an actor. But if we think of an actor and actresses on a stage, on a play, in a play, it's, it's, it's in a sense, God is the sovereign director. He is going to work out. He is the greatest director, and he is going to make everything in every act of that play work out for his intended purpose and for his glory. Now, in that, there are a lot of things that we have to simply trust and obey and remain faithful and live according to the will of God. And sometimes we want to get up onto the director's chair, and we want to try to figure out everything that God is doing and everything instead of humbling ourselves and playing our role in God's will on the stage of life, so to speak, as the actor or the actress in God's play, and we need to humble ourselves and be obedient to what he has given us to do in, from the script that he has given us. And I don't mean that, again, in any sacrilegious or irreverent way. I want that to be understood uh, in, in the right way. But sometimes we think that if we can get on the director's chair and we can figure out God, then we can tell everybody else how it's supposed to be done and how to do it and how wrong they are and how right we are. And that's one of the dangers with some of these systems of theology and eschatological views. And again, we can beat each other up over the head over these things and act like we're on the right hand of the throne of God. And what did Jesus say to the disciples when they're arguing about who was going to be on the right hand of the throne of God? He humbled them, didn't he? He said, who's going to be last is going to be first. And deny yourselves, take up your cross. And then he reminded them of their need to be a servant. So we have to remember that prophecy is a testimony of God's sovereign control. Secondly, secondly, letter B, it gives believers confidence to live by faith. We need to see prophecy as a, a, a hopeful, confident motivation of our obedience, not of a fatalistic sit back, oh, God's going to work it all out so I can just sit on my couch and eat potato chips and drink my Diet Coke because it's all in God's hands anyway. I've met people like that. It's that case or all, or all attitude. Whatever will be, will be. I've met a father and I, I, I remember uh, dealing with his son at school, and he was just like, eh, it'll all get worked out anyway. There's nothing I can really do about it. They're just their own child. They're just their own person. No, that child has been given to you by God. We're to live out those principles of parenting. We're to live out those principles in our life and be obedient in every way that God has given us the strength and the ability to obey him in whatever area and whatever calling whatever talent, whatever gift, whatever ability. We're to live that out for the Lord. We're to give it to him as a living sacrifice. And we're to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, knowing that it is God that worketh in us, both the will and the do of his good pleasure. So we have this confidence, knowing that God is in control, that he is sovereign. He's going to work out his plan, but we have a place in it. 
We have a privilege to be in that, again, using that analogy of a play. We have our place that God has given us, our role, and we are to live it out to the best of our ability, to God's honor and to God's glory. In the fact that we don't deserve that, we don't even deserve to be on the platform in the play, and the fact that he will reward us for living out by his strength an obedient life in the will of God. He chooses to reward us. We don't deserve to even be in the play, to even be a part of his will. We don't even deserve that, and then he will reward us when we live obedient. That's an incredible thought. That's a humbling thought. So it gives believers confidence to live by faith. Thirdly, it gives believers hope for the future. Now, I don't know about you. I'm a, I'm a sports fan. You know uh, enough about me by now that I enjoy sports, and uh, it's, it's something that I've had to learn to keep in its proper perspective and, and, and learn uh, to prioritize it. And uh, I try to really keep it in check. Uh, it was good for me my freshman year of college because I went to a Bible college that we didn't have TVs. We didn't have a television except down in the basement, and it was carefully ordered by the university. And some of us would shrivel up and die if we didn't have a screen, right? Okay. And I had to have a rude awakening my freshman year when I wanted to watch a college football game on a Saturday afternoon, and I had to get a ride to the mall and hope that the electronics section of the department store had the football game on. It was good for me, though. God taught me priorities because I used to be that guy who I wanted to watch every college football bowl game. That was my goal every year to watch at least part of, if not the entire, you know, the big five bowl games. I had to watch them all in their entirety, and I had to watch, if I could, every single one of the other ones. You know, back then there were only maybe 25 bowls. Now there's about 100. You know, you got the, the Wheaties Bowl and the Cheerios Bowl and the Tostitos Bowl and the bowl of soup and the bowl of stew. You know, I mean, there's a bowl for everything, right? And they've all got a corporate name, an advertisement attached to it. God taught me uh, some important lessons about priorities in my life, and I still have to be reminded of those. But what do we do? We, we, we watch nowadays, we can DVR a game, and we can record, and then we go and we watch. And we know who, if we're, if we're now it's really hard nowadays to know, to not know, excuse me, who won the game. And, you know, there are people who they DVR a game, and then they walk out of church, they walk out of church like this, right? <laughs> because they don't want to hear somebody talk about the score of the game. Because they want to see it, and they want to know who, they don't want to know who won until they watch it in its entirety. But it's really hard to do nowadays. You pick up your phone, you go to the ESPN app, and you know the score. What, 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 what does that change when you watch the rerun of the game? If you know who's going to win, what does it do? It changes your outlook on the game. You're not nervous, you're not as anxious, you're not you know, worried, you're not fretting, you're not throwing things to the TV. Uh, maybe you still do because you're favorite player did something dumb in the game, but you know who's going to win. You already know the score. You just want to see how it plays out. Now, I don't mean that in a lazy sense as a Christian. It's not the best analogy, but there is a sense in which we don't worry and we're not anxious and we're not fretting because we know who the winner is. We know that God is going to meet out his perfect will. 
he is going to fulfill his redemption plan in its entirety, down to its details. That gives us hope for the future. That doesn't mean, again, that we sit back and we relax and we put it in neutral and we cruise through life. God has given us work to do. He has told us to be busy, to occupy till I come. We are to live a righteous and holy and godly life. And in knowing that God is going to work out his perfect redemption plan, that should motivate us to be as much a part of that as we possibly can as long as God gives us breath here on this earth in every way that we can. But instead, too many times, so-called believers, professing Christians, are sitting as armchair quarterbacks and virtually doing nothing for the Lord. But they're sure happy to criticize everything that's going on and all the sin and the evil and the vice and all the things that all the other Christians and all the people in the church should be doing, but they don't have to lift one finger or take one step to do it. They have a wrong view of the redemption plan of God and his sovereignty. We're to stay busy for the Lord and whatever he's given us to do while we are hopeful for the future knowing that as a believer, we are on the winning side, that we will be with him in glory as God fulfills that redemption plan and we're in that glorified state. We should have a hope for the future and not live in fret and worry and wringing our hands. At the same time, we have things that God has given us to do. And then what else is a purpose for prophecy? It calls sinners to repentance. You know, one of the hard things, one of the hard truths about prophecy is it speaks of judgment. Do we, do we realize, I know this is a topic of negativity that is relegated to oblivion in some Christian circles, but do we realize that hell is an aspect of eschatology? It's that curse word that people use that even our president used recently. It's a flippant curse word, but it's a reality. It's not a curse word, though it's used as one, shamefully. It is a reality. It is part of eschatology that we have to face that reality. Individually, and trusting Christ as our Savior, Jesus Christ being the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by him. But also it's a message of judgment that we have to share with a lost and dying world that is going to meet these eschatological events, either as an unsaved person or as a saved person. We don't have time to get into all the judgment, see the, the, the great white throne judgment and all that right now. But there is an aspect to eschatology that calls sinners to repentance. There is a judgment day coming in. It's appointed a man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Eschatology is interesting. There are charts. There are all kinds of graphs. One of the best books I ever read on eschatology, Pastor Defoe handed uh, to me. Actually, I think it was my mom that bought it for me, but Pastor Defoe recommended it, and my mom bought it for me years ago. Dwight Pentecost, Things to Come. And I started reading that, and that just piqued my curiosity. And I have read several different books, and I've got uh, Bob Shelton's uh, book on God's prophetic blueprint. Have you ever heard of Dr. Bob Shelton? He is an expert on 
eschatology. He's helped me tremendously. Uh, not that I am, uh, and again, we, we have to be careful, okay? Just because I mentioned Timothy LaHaye doesn't mean that uh, I endorse everything about Timothy LaHaye. He's written a book called Charting the End Times, and it's a very useful book for that subject of prophecy, and he's got some great charts. Maybe I'll share one of those um, one day. But Timothy LaHaye, um, also it's from his Left Behind series that those different uh, movies came out, and, and that's not where, to, where we're to get our eschatology, okay? It's, it's, it's Kirk Cameron, maybe a Christian, and uh, maybe there's some, uh, you know, dramatic aspects that we can learn. I'm not saying it's wrong to watch the Left Behind movies or to, lead, to read the Left Behind series. I'm not saying it's wrong, but ultimately we have to check all those things by the Word of God. We have to take all of those and look at what does the Bible say. And that's a, another topic for another day, okay? Uh, I don't want to get too carried away with that. But, you know, there are, there are things that we can glean from good people that we're not saying that we wholesale endorse them. Um, there are lots of people that we disagree with, but we can glean something valuable uh, from them. Um, so we have to be careful in eschatology especially that we're not getting carried away because there's a lot of error. There's a lot of mis information, if I can use that word, a lot of misinterpretation in, in this area, in this topic. So we've got to be careful. Um, but I know Timothy LaHage, White Pentecost, Things to Come. Those are a couple of books, Bob Shelton's books, uh, on, or his book on God's prophetic blueprint. Uh, those have been very helpful, and I can recommend uh, those books. Um, but we have to be discerning. And then finally, a fifth uh, purpose of prophecy is that it calls believers to holiness. And I've already touched on this uh, as well. Occupy till I come. We want to be ready when the Lord calls us home, whether by death or by rapture. When we're standing before our maker, do we want to stand before him with empty hands? Do we want to stand before him with wood, hay, and stubble? It's going to be burned up as the rewards are given out and we have nothing except the fact that we trusted Christ as our Savior, but we've done very little for Him. We've basically set ourselves, our affections on things below instead of on things above. We've sought first the kingdom of this world instead of the kingdom of God. And we'll have what's left on these fields out here that are getting harvested. that gets blown away in the wind. And that's all we'll have. And there will be heaven for us, yes, but what will we be able to give to God in praise of him, of him? Will there be any crowns, any jewels, any gold, silver, or precious stones? Eschatology calls believers to holiness. We're almost out of time, but I want to just touch on, and I'll put these points up just briefly, and then we'll uh, be finished after, after this point on important principles. So I want to touch on this, and then we'll... Lord willing, come back in a couple of weeks because Dr. Hartman will be here next Sunday night. But I want to leave us with this because we have to be careful when we are interpreting prophetic passages of Scripture. Okay, We have to be careful. We have to practice good principles of interpretation. Believers, I am shocked sometimes, maybe I shouldn't be, but I am shocked sometimes at how little believers know about their Bibles or even about interpreting their Bibles or where even certain Bible characters are in the Bible, or certain Bible stories, events are. And, and there's 
very little sometimes among Christians of any, even any chronology of biblical events. It's, it's shocking. And that's one of the things about eschatology that's really good for us is it helps us with chronology even. Because we go back to Daniel and we see the, the prophecies in Daniel. And we go to Revelation and there's a lot that, that goes on in the times of Daniel that also is uh, reflected in history and then into the future in eschatology. So, important principles. Symbolic language is very, very often used in prophecy. And some of that is just because they did not have the terms nuclear weapons in Greek, in Koine Greek or in Hebrew. There was no term for a tank or a rocket or a missile. They didn't have those kinds of terms. Um, we have to recognize symbolic language and interpret it properly. So, Brother Clark, Dan Clark, was teaching a few weeks ago and mentioned about the scorpion in the book of Revelation that could sting and cause torment on whoever was stung by that scorpion. Is it possible that scorpion is actually a medical technology or a technology of the military? Is it possible that it is some, I don't know, chemical warfare or germ warfare? We don't know for sure, but they had to use the terms that they had available to them in that day. And he used scorpion. And there are other symbolic terms, and I have a couple of examples. The angel in Revelation 3 of each church the angel means messenger. Does that mean that Berean Baptist Church has an angelic being that's, you know, assigned to our church? I'm I, I, not so sure that's how we should interpret Revelation 3. The angel is the messenger that is probably the pastor of that church. And there's a message that he is giving to his church, okay? The beasts of Revelation 4, those are symbolic the bear and the different beasts are symbolic of specific types of, of, of judgments and methods and the way God is going to deal with the world. And each of those beasts is symbolic and it reflects an aspect of God's dealing with the world during the tribulation and different aspects of how the world is affected by God's judgments and the different famines and droughts and the type of ki the, the kinds of judgments and the kinds of things that will be happening to the world during the tribulation. Again, they didn't have all of the vocabulary that we have. I mean, the, the dictionary is expanding, it seems like, every year with new terms that we kind of just make up out of nowhere, some of which are just ridiculous. There, there's no point in even having those terms. But again, helping us understand is one, uh, one, one man said, and, and I don't remember who exactly this quote came from, but if the plain sense makes sense, I have the comma in the wrong place, sorry. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. <laughs> Just literally interpreting the Bible without trying to read into every little thing. And then prophetic passages are usually written with a sense of imminence. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen right now. So we often, what we do is we read into that, and there could be gaps of time. 
the prophets would look and they would see a mountain peak and then they'd see another mountain peak further down. I've not been out west in the, the Rockies in that area. I've been in the, what the people who live out west, they would call the Appalachians hills. Those are mountains to me, having grown up here in Indiana. The Appalachians, the Smoky Mountains are mountains. But if you go out west, I understand, and you look out across, and you can see the peaks. And often in prophecy, the Old Testament prophets are seeing the peaks of prophecy. And there's valleys in between where God is doing a lot in between. Even the church age would be considered a, a valley between the peaks of Christ's first coming and, and second coming. Okay? And then we'll, we'll close with this. Prophetic passages often combine more than one prediction in a single passage with no indication of the amount of time between events. Literally, and we see this in Joel 2 when Peter preaches and he references Joel 2, there is a prophecy that is fulfilled at Acts chapter number 2 in Peter's preaching in the birth of the church, and then he cuts it off because the rest of that prophetic fulfillment is in the future. And we'll see that in one verse in different prophetic passages in the Old Testament, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, where there will be one verse, and it literally can have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Okay, One example is Antiochus Epiphanes in the book of Daniel, Antiochus Epiphanes is a real person with a near fulfillment in his destruction of and his desecration of Israel, Jerusalem, and the abomination of desolation that he does. He, 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 he kills a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies. Okay, This is in the intertestamental period. Daniel talks about him, and he is a picture, he is a type of, of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation, in referenced in Daniel, who also will commit an abomination of desolation, which will be at the midpoint of the tribulation. And then the treaty of Israel with Israel will have been broken, and the great tribulation will begin that three and a half year period after. But what I'm saying is that there are even near fulfillments and far fulfillments. And that's one example of that with Antiochus Epiphanes. So prophetic passages can sometimes combine more than one prediction. And sometimes there can be great gaps of time in between. So I hope that helps us tonight. This is just a, a brief look at prophecy and what it is and the purpose of it and some principles for helping us interpret. I hope that uh, this has made sense tonight. Maybe you felt like you were in a prophecy class and I uh, hope I didn't throw anything too much over your heads. Maybe we'll have to uh, give some thought and digest this. And maybe I stirred up some questions, and I'll, I'll try to answer some of those. I do have a deacon's meeting to get to tonight, so I won't be able to stay and answer a lot of questions. But I hope this at least whets our appetite for more and helps us in understanding why God gave us prophecy and the blessing of it and the joy in, in studying it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, help us to be thankful and to live in the light of your word and Lord, to live by your word faithfully and properly interpreting your word. And Lord, help us in this day and age in which we see so much evil around us and we certain, see certain things going on that seem to be signs of the times. Uh, Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to keep our eyes on the word of God and to live by the word. And Lord, we know that you are working out your 
redemption plan in your perfect will and in your perfect time. And we thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll uh, turn in our hymnals. If we'll stand and turn our hymnals, Derek will lead us in a closing.